Welcome to Kolisha, the podcast that gives Orthodox women a voice. Welcome back to Kolisha. This week, I wanted to talk about a topic that's a little bit sensitive for some, um, and that is the topic of Jewish divorce. And to do that, I invited the CEO of an organization called ORA. Um, her name is Keshet Star. And for those who are not familiar with ORA, it's an organization that helps um, Agunot, and it also um, promotes halakhic and helps people work through um, their divorces in the Jewish community. So Keshet is a lawyer. She graduated from Penn Law School, um, and she is the CEO of ORA, and she's a wife and a mom. Welcome, Keshet. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. So Keshet, um, just a little bit of background about yourself. Can you share anything um, about you know, why you decided to get into this business and, you know, what it is that you do on a regular basis at ORA. Sure. So I went to law school wanting to do something with family law and social justice. I really wasn't sure what, maybe child advocacy. And I became interested in domestic abuse. And I had this sort of interesting experience that came up where I interned at an agency that was representing domestic abuse victims in divorce cases and orders of protection and things like that. And they had just gotten a grant to work with victims in the Orthodox community. And I'm a Baal's Jew, I never really thought about there being abuse in the Orthodox community, but I was really interested in the idea of sort of this challenging issue that was going on in the community. And over that summer internship, I was the only firm person on the project. So it was also just, I think, really powerful to see how much I connected with the clients that were coming in and how much more nuanced my take was able to be because I was also living in the community that we were working with. And so after that experience, I knew I wanted to do something related to Orthodox, um, Orthodox Jewish communities and domestic abuse. I ended up hearing about the position at ORA. And at the time when I had worked at um, the legal agency, a lot of the maneuvering and the planning that we did was all around the get. The get was kind of like this boogeyman in the corner that we were all strategizing around all day. So I figured I would go try out this thing, learn a lot about the get, you know, for a few years and then come back to matrimonial litigation. But then I actually found that I fell in love with advocacy work and community education and really wanted to stay doing that. Because um, one of the great things about what we do is that we get to see hundreds of cases from sort of a bird's eye view. So you get a different perspective than if you're really on the ground in just a few cases and that helps inform policy and some other elements. Wow, so um, it sounds like your career took a little bit of a different uh, turn from where you had intended. So can you sort of explain to any listeners that are not familiar with what a get is and just sort of like the basics of, of Jewish divorce and how that kind of plays in with the concept of aguna? Like, what is all that about? Absolutely. So one thing that's really different about Jewish divorce and civil divorce is that in civil law, it's the state that you're in that gets to decide if you're married or divorced. But in Jewish law, it's actually a totally different structure. And it's kind of like you, I mean, 
lawyers are more okay with this word, but it's almost like a contract. Like you make an agreement, husband and wife, that this is the kind of relationship we want to have. And so you need that agreement to start the marriage and you need another agreement to end the marriage. And that happens with the giving of the get. And the get has to be given by the husband and received by the wife. And it has to be performed willingly on both sides. And so in a lot of situations, the one thing everyone can agree on is that they want to get divorced. But in some situations, you get into a stalemate where we can't have this second agreement and the get doesn't happen. And then without a get, you're really stuck because in most communities, not only can you not remarry without a get, but you can't even date without a get. So you can't even start to think about moving on. You're still really stuck in that relationship. And we also live in a community where we kind of categorize people. This is the singles crowd. This is the married crowd, you know, the younger couples, the older couples. And for an aguna, you don't fit in anywhere. You're not in a functional marriage, but you're not really single and able to kind of go out there and meet people like your single friends might be doing. So you're kind of stuck in limbo and that really limits your options and puts people in a really difficult position. And what are you finding in terms of like the, the some of the common reasons of why someone uh, can't get a get or, you know, why it won't be given? Um, what kind of scenarios come up that would prevent a woman from receiving her get? Sure, so there are typically kind of two main categories. You can have what we call classical aguna situations where the husband might be missing or mentally incapacitated and there's a reason he can't give the get. He's not there sort of to actually give it over. But in the cases that we deal with at Ora, the husband is right there, we know exactly where he is, but he doesn't want to give the get. And so people ask, you know, why? Why would someone not want to do this? And the truth is we work with get refusers all the time. When I started at Ora, I was a case advocate, so I spent all day on the phone with get refusers. And they typically give one of three reasons when we ask them, what's going on here? What's the problem? Sometimes it's that they actually still love the person and they want the relationship to continue and they're really heartbroken that the other person wants to leave. Sometimes it's kind of spite and revenge. We had a case advocate who was speaking with a get refuser and he said, this isn't, he asked him, why are you doing this? You know, what's the hold up here? And the guy said, you know, this isn't going to sound very nice, but it just kind of makes me happy to know that she's suffering and it's because of me. And again, I don't think most people are, are sort of born this way, but a divorce can be a really intense and antagonistic process. And the longer it continues, the more intense it can get. And so people years after that, after a really nasty, you know, custody battle, something like that, sometimes revenge is kind of what they prioritize. But I would say the most common reason we get is that they want something. You want the get, I want this specific custody arrangement. You want the get, I'm gonna get the house and you're gonna walk away. That there's some kind of negotiation, but really an extortion that's happening around the get. But one thing that we really try to get the word about for, at ORA is that even though these are kind of three individual reasons, what's really underlying all of them is control and abuse. That at the end of the day, the person is saying, I'm the one that's going to decide when this relationship ends. 
And the fact that you don't want to be here, that's not really super impactful for me. If I want the relationship to continue, then it's going to. Or it's, I'm going to decide how much I think you deserve to be punished. This is what I think you did to me. And I'm going to kind of be the judge and jury and pass a sentence. Or it's, I'm going to decide what this divorce arrangement looks like. And there is no judge and no, you know, legal counsel that's going to tell me what to do because I'm going to have that final say. And so what it really comes down to is that coercive control, which is sort of a core part of abuse, that abuse is about one person controlling another. And that's what get refusal is really about. And the majority of the cases we work on at ORA have a long story of abuse that starts in the marriage way before they're in the divorce process. And it really continues into the get process. So it sounds like the underlying theme is really control. And so do you think that there are predictive factors in a marriage for uh, someone winding up as an aguna potentially, you know, in the divorce process? Definitely. Probably the biggest predictor is just that abusive dynamic in the relationship. And again, abuse can take so many forms. We tend to think of abuse as physical, but it can also be psychological. It can be financial. There are lots of different tools that abusers use to control their partners. But if that's the tone of the relationship, that is very indicative of what the divorce is going to be like. Some of the saddest phone calls I've had at ORA are with women who are still married, outwardly everything's fine, but they're in abusive situations. And they will say, part of why I'm not leaving is that I'm not going to get my get. My spouse has told me, if you go, you are never getting that get and you're going to be in Aguna forever. So what's the point? And there's kind of this feeling that even if I go through this unimaginable process of leaving my home and doing it safely and getting my kids out and you know surviving financially I'm still going to be stuck so why even bother which is so awful because obviously this person is suffering in a marriage and they can't even get away from that after the mar- like after they want to end their marriage it's it's awful so what does ORA do for, for women? Um, I don't know if there's a component that helps men as well, but what exactly uh, does the ORA organization do? What, uh, like sort of the mission statement and you know how exactly do you help people in this situation? So great question. And just to clarify, because people wonder this about us a lot, our name is Organization for the Resolution of Agunot, but okay. we work with men too. We don't work with so many, but um, Get refusal can happen on both sides, and we're here to help whoever is trying to pursue a get and has a partner who's not cooperating. So just a, a PSA, if anyone knows someone in that situation, we are there to help. So our mission very broadly is that we want to take abuse out of the Jewish divorce process because unfortunately so often abuse is part of it, and when done right, the Jewish divorce system I think is actually so wise and insightful and it provides a sense of closure. And so we want people to get all the really positive aspects of this process without dealing with abuse. And we have a bunch of different program areas. We have an advocacy department with a team of incredible case advocates that work on serious Aguna situations. And these are cases where upwards of 95% have a history of domestic abuse in the marriage itself, 
they've generally been separated at least two or three years, pretty much at a minimum. They've tried to go through the baked-in process and either they have a ruling, but now they need to do something with it or they haven't been able to get to a ruling because the case is so complicated. And many of these situations are complex divorces. There are other things going on. Someone might be in prison. There might be you know, different accusations they're dealing with in court. We worked on a case once where a couple had um, a child that was very sick, that had severe special needs, and they really disagreed on what sort of treatment path to follow. And that was a huge source of conflict that really complicated the divorce and really complicated the get. So our case advocates essentially will do anything that doesn't violate civil law or halakha that is going to work on the case. And that could mean very behind the scenes work, speaking to the get refuser for hours, speaking to their friends and family, their rub, really getting a sense of what the core issue is, even if you're telling us the issue is X, is the issue really something a little different or a little deeper? And in some cases, it's much more public. It's a demonstration outside someone's home or place of business, a social media campaign. And sometimes it's a totally different strategy. A lot of times it's working with the person's lawyer to creatively bring the get into the civil process or to find a sort of unusual creative workaround for a complicated baked-in process. And through that program, we've been able to resolve 337 Agunat cases. And wow. Yeah, so thank God. We're really fortunate to have been able to do that. And we typically work on about 70 to 75 cases at a time. And when we resolve one, there's one coming in from the waiting list. So it's been pretty consistent, unfortunately, and, um, and really growing over the years. Wow, it's amazing, you know, that you've... Uh, worked on and resolved that many cases, but it's also so sad because like I, you know, in my mind, the situation of a Gunoda is very rare, you know, it's like maybe once in a blue moon, like I would not have thought that there are that many cases to work on. So on the one hand, it's like so wonderful that you're resolving so many on the other. It's like so shocking and eye opening to know that there are so many women in that awful situation. So how do you like, how do you deal with that? Like yourself? I mean, it must be very difficult to carry all that with you. And I'm sure you can't just like leave it at work. You know, this is like painful stuff. It is very intense. And I think we really work on our organizational culture. We have, I mean, we typically work all in one office, so we're around each other, we can support each other easily. Now with COVID, we've been kind of transitioning that to doing sort of staff activities as often as we can, but we work really hard to create a culture where we can be there for each other because it is hard and it is emotional. And I'll say for myself, I think that I'm honestly pretty good at taking care of myself, which has made a big difference, that I really have a lot of creative outlets. I love to read. I love to write. I love to scrapbook and do photography and just making sure that I have time for those other parts of my life helps me have the energy to kind of bear the sadness because you do see a lot of really sad situations and a lot of suffering in a job like this. Wow. Yeah. It sounds, that sounds like a really balanced approach that you have. Um, just, you mentioned something earlier that I wanted to jump back to when you were talking about the civil courts versus the baked in courts. Where do these 
issues typically get resolved. Is there ever situations where they get resolved just like in the Jewish courts or does it usually have to wind up in the civil courts? Because the reason I ask is because one thing that's always on my mind, I'm like very cognizant of is like Chil Hashem and sort of like keeping the dirty laundry on the down low, you know? So I kind of get this like cringy feeling when I think about all this stuff being aired in the non-Jewish courts towards people who don't really have a clue of the, you know, like minutia that goes on in the community with halacha and all these other things. It's like very sensitive. And I'm sure, you know, you guys, I'm sure have a lot of expertise in explaining that to to non-Jewish people or people who aren't familiar. So where does that typically happen? And like, how do you go about doing that? So the truth is you are 10 times more likely to get a get out of a beaten process than out of a civil court process. And so there really are so many Jewish courts that are doing an amazing job handling this. And in terms of the Chil Hashem piece, I think about that a lot. I also speak, I do a lot of legal education classes and I'm speaking to a non-Jewish audience and trying to present this issue in a way that doesn't make us seem super terrible. And um, a few things that I mention to kind of keep people's, to sort of balance perspectives as I'm talking is that first of all, the civil system, it's easy to say, oh, in civil court, we do this and that, but in Beaton, there are all these problems. The civil court system is not fantastic. There are many, many deep problems with how divorce works in civil court. And if I'm sharing this with people who work in the civil court system, they're sort of nodding vigorously. So I think it helps to just remind ourselves that we all struggle with finding a really great fair system to do something as messy as sort of taking a family apart into two households, that that's a hard thing to do well. And I think we all struggle with that. And the other piece is that I share every time I speak that it would be easy to hear about the challenges with the get and the beaten system and say, got it, note to self, don't go near a beaten with a 10 foot pole, you know, that's bad news. But that unfortunately, because it's a little more complicated, that's too simple because there are things that the Beitin does really well. The Beitin understands from culture in a way that a court never can. If a couple is really fighting over which schools to send their children to, a Beitin can actually really help them find schools that are in between that meet their needs where a court wouldn't know where to start. And actually a colleague of mine who represents women in court and in Beaton occasionally shared with me recently that one thing she likes about Beaton is that women get more of a chance to talk. In court, you stand silently and your lawyer talks for you. And it's sort of known that if your client starts talking, that's not a good sign. Unless they're on the stand or they're being asked a question, they're supposed to zip it and stand there quietly next to you. And in a beaten proceeding, they're often able to give people the floor and to allow people to really speak on their own behalf, which I think is also empowering for, for people and for women especially. So again, I think there's a, a real balance there. There are unfortunately Jewish courts that don't do this job well and that don't behave ethically and responsibly. And there are so many that go above and beyond in a way that is very different from what a court would or could ever do in order to help couples to sort of cut costs and to really help people who are going through this process. And it sounds like possibly like being in touch with someone like you or your organization helps people to work through 
finding the right court or finding the right bait in and like, you know, a situation that will be helpful to them rather than just going in blind or being dragged where the other side wants them to go. Is that accurate? Absolutely. And we actually, our second program is a Jewish divorce helpline because we realized people were only calling us a few years into the divorce. And by then they had already picked their bait in. They had already decided if they were doing bait in or cord and which one. And we were kind of coming into a mess and trying to clean it up. So we figured if we can just get people at the beginning, before you sign an arbitration agreement to a bait in, just make sure you know where you're going and it's the right forum for you and what you need. And so we have this helpline program, which is staffed by an incredible, very patient and kind social worker. And we work with another 300 people every year through that program. So that's also separate from the 70 to 75 Aguno. We have another 300 people who are worried enough about the get that they're calling us. And that might be, it could be that what they need right away is not a get. The, you know, the electricity is getting turned off in a week and it's really getting child support. That's the pressing issue. And in some cases, they're still married and outwardly everything is normal and really behind the scenes they know that they're in a bad situation and they're trying to get information to get out but i think that it is a game changer to know from the beginning how the system works and to get a sense of the players involved because a lot of people go in blind no one teaches us you know how to get divorced and i'm not saying there should be a high school class on that but i think that most people go in blind on this and it's a really scary vulnerable moment in your life to be just kind of winging it so the more information we can give people, the more they can make decisions that are right for them and that put them in a, in a position of strength with regards to the get, with regards to anything else that's important to them. So it sounds like that hotline is sort of like a proactive piece, which I really love because like you said, if you don't know what to do going in, that's when you can get into a mess. It's like you said, this is not the kind of thing that people are familiar with navigating and and. God willing, very few people should be uh, familiar with navigating these waters, but like, because it's such a rare thing, like, it sounds like people can get really, um, like, stuck in a mess if they don't know what to do from the outset. And then that's where a lot of the damage happens, especially considering many of these people are already in controlling relationships. And so they don't necessarily have you know, their own voice in the situation. So I, I always love organizations that have a proactive approach. I mean, I think we're really good at doing reactive things, um, but there are fewer things set up for the proactive purposes of like anticipating a need, um, anticipating when something might go wrong. No one really wants to think about that, you know, but when something is going wrong, then there are so many, you know, amazing people that are willing to give their money to help anyone who's sick and all this stuff. But like to think about what could potentially be a problem is a whole different mindset, which, um, which sort of brings me to uh, my next question, because, you know, when, when we're young and we go to high school and we go through our seminaries and whatever, everything is so marriage focused and, you know, you're taught everything's going to be so wonderful and everyone's going to get along great. Like no one wants to anticipate these awful situations. But like, unfortunately, it does happen. And you mentioned before that you guys are available to help men as well when needed, but it's a totally different situation for men versus women from a halachic standpoint. So can you explain a little bit like why 
does the halacha have this concept of aguna in place? Um, and how is it different for a man versus a woman? Because you said a woman has to receive the get from a man willingly, but, you know, does it go the same way for the man? And, you know, what are the differences that, that could come up for men versus women? So there are real halakhic differences in terms of how it works, again, on the man's side and on the woman's side. I'll start with what's the same because it's just helpful to know. So again, the husband has to willingly give the get, the wife has to willingly receive it. If either party is not playing their role, it's a problem. And so they really need to both be doing that willingly or you're kind of in a tough situation. I think there are a few reasons why we tend to see more men refusing than women. Part of it is that honestly, a lot of women don't even know they can refuse. It's kind of like a fun fact that actually, you know, this goes both ways. That's not something that's so widely known and widely considered. A huge difference is mom's heiress. So if a woman were to say, you know what, forget this get nonsense, I'm moving out with my life, and she were to have a new relationship and have a child, that child would be a mom's heir. And a lot of women, even if they feel like, you know, this is not something I believe in, to make that decision for your child is a really big deal. And especially for Israeli women, you can be totally secular, but you're living in a halakhic state, and to make that decision is going to have really serious ramifications for your child. Where for a man in a new relationship, there isn't that concern about Manzeras, and so I think that does shift some of the fears. One thing that people ask about a lot is the Heter Meir Rabbanim, which is essentially a sort of permission slip from a hundred rabbis. And technically what it allows a man to do is to marry a second wife. That there is this idea that since in the Torah polygamy was allowed, in some extreme situations, you can essentially have a second marriage. And the way that's supposed to work is that a get is left in escrow for sort of the first wife, so to speak, that it's available for her to pick up. And unfortunately, there were some rogue rabbis, and by some I mean less than five, so we're not talking about a big group of people, who essentially for a big lump of cash started writing these heteromeyer rabbanims to whoever asked, and they would essentially give a heteromeyer rabbanim without the person giving a gift. So the first wife is still an Abuna, and the husband is marrying someone else and having children. And again, in some ways, I think these sort of bad actors have ruined it for a lot of the good guys, where today, most Batedin will not consider a Hetermei Rabbanim unless the wife is in a permanent vegetative state. So they're really only using it for extreme, unusual, tragic situations. And if you have a guy whose wife is refusing to receive a get, they're a hetermeyer rabbanim, unless you're willing to pay $50,000 to a super sketchy rabbi who is also the only person in the world that's going to marry you, you actually don't have such great options. So again, there are some halakhic differences, which is why I think we see so many more men refusing than women. But for someone who's really trying to do things in a straightforward, honest way, and their wife is refusing to receive the get, they are in a bad situation. Okay, so it sounds like the the playing field has evened out a little bit because in the past, I think like the heteromir bunim used to be a little more common. I mean, I I know there's like a well-known Rosh Hashiva who I, I won't name names who is in that kind of situation. I think it's it's a pretty well-known fact. 
that, um, you know, he was previously married to a woman who would not accept the divorce and then he married someone else. So to me, and I think to a lot of women, that sounds so unfair, you know, like how come men can move on, but women can't. Um, but I guess that's just the nature of the halacha at this point. Right. I mean, I think that's true. And I do think that one thing that I found a lot of comfort in, because definitely as a from Jew, this is a tough issue. We joke at Ora that we're not getting invited to Kirib Shabbatons anytime soon. Like this is not an issue that makes Judaism look good. But the truth is halacha really has not changed because we obviously believe in sort of the continuity of the Torah that we received, but halacha has evolved over time in a very broad strokes way. So the fact that we have a ketubah that was instituted to protect women financially, who were getting a bad deal in divorces a really, really long time ago. The fact that the woman has to willingly receive the get, that wasn't built into the system. That was added by Rabbeinu Gershom. And it was added in order to even out the playing field, essentially, between men and women in divorce. So I feel like we do have a system that can create challenges, but we also have a tradition of looking at the system and finding creative ways not to sort of take away or to change, but to add another layer that addresses current social issues. And part of the reason that we are so passionate about advocating for the halakhic prenup is that I think it's a way of doing it. It's a way of adding one more step to our divorce process that makes a huge difference in preventing agunas situations. And that is completely sort of halakhic and a part of a normative, you know, traditional Jewish marriage, but it addresses the social issue that we're looking out and seeing today. So great. So that's actually the next thing I wanted to talk about with you. Um, so what is the halachic prenup and, you know, who's supposed to get one? How do they go about it? What does it do? What does it help with? Tell me what, what that is. What's that all about? Sure. So the halachic prenup is a document that you sign before you get married that prevents get refusal later on. And without going into all the legalese, there are kind of two big things you need to know to understand the prenup. One is that it's an arbitration agreement to a single baked in. And that doesn't sound exciting to anyone, but what we find in our cases is that a lot of the delays and the problems in Aguna cases are people fighting over which beitin to go to. So when you've signed a halachic prenup, you've already decided. In the event of a problem, God forbid, your beitin is chosen. And if you sign it with the beitin of America, which is the um, the institution behind the halakhic prenup that we advocate for, you're going to a really reputable, ethical, responsible forum. The second piece of the prenup is that it invokes a halakhic support obligation, which is kind of a, a convoluted way of phrasing it, but it basically creates a situation where it's saying that you have an obligation to your spouse because in Jewish marriage, we have obligations to each other. So if you're living separately, then you have an obligation to support your spouse. And there's one version that's just the husband to the wife, one version that goes both ways. But the basic system is that if you're not living together and you're still halakhically married, i.e. you haven't given a get, you owe your spouse $150 a day. And that works out to about $54,000 a year, so it really adds up. So what it basically does is it creates a financial disincentive to delaying the get that for every day you're kind of dragging your feet on the get, the bill is getting longer and longer. And so that encourages you to go ahead and do it. 
In practice though, you rarely see money changing hands. The beauty of the prenup, and it's been around long enough that we've seen it work, is that it does a few things really well. One is that it kind of just takes the get off the table. I was working on a case once where they actually lost the prenup. She didn't have it, but they definitely signed one. But we didn't even have a copy. And the husband's towing, his rabbinic advisor, was telling me, well, if she wants the get, she has to agree to this custody arrangement, and she has to do this, and she has to do that. And I said, well, you know, there's a prenup. And I sort of used my language vaguely because we didn't actually have it. And the towing said, oh, there's a prenup. Okay, fine. Like, we'll schedule to get for Thursday. Like, it just takes it out of the process. Like, if you wanted to play ball with this get, you can't do that anymore. And truthfully, and I always explain this to men who are a little anxious about it, the only thing you're giving up by signing a prenup is the opportunity to be a jerk about the get later. That's it. You have all of your other rights, civil and halakhic. So if you want to keep that opportunity, that's a really good thing to know about the person you're marrying, but that's really the only thing you're giving up on. There's nothing else. And the other great thing about the prenup is that it encourages the get early on. These cases get worse as long as they go, and they can become very high conflict, and it is really hard to change someone's mind if they've been holding a position for five years or 10 years or 25 than if they've been holding a position for two weeks. And so one of the great things about the prenup is that it really encourages a get early on. Whatever happens in court, the get is not contingent on how that works and how that relationship goes. And I'll just share a story. We had a woman who came to us who was in a really physically violent relationship, other elements of control as well. She was leaving, she was really scared, didn't know what to do. Her husband was explicitly threatening to withhold the get for 15, 20 years because she didn't have children and she really wanted children. So he was trying to use that as, as his revenge. And in talking to her, she kind of mentioned offhand or we asked her, we found out that she had a prenup actually. And so we were able to guide her on how to actually enforce the prenup. And we got a call three weeks later, thanks so much, I have my get. And that was almost the same profile as so many of the Aguna cases that we work with, where women have been waiting five years, 10 years. We have a case where they separated in 1974 and there's still no get. And that's extreme, but it can happen and people are really afraid of it. And so by having a prenup, it really is a game changer. And a lot of people worry that the people who need it won't be the ones who sign it. But that's really not true. If you're in a community where the culture is to sign a prenup, then the people who need it do sign it. And you know, when the moment comes where they do decide to end the relationship, they have the tool they need to be able to get out without the gap being held over them. So I wanted to ask you a question about the, the money factor that you mentioned, because it sounds like that's an incentive to really speed up the process. Like you said, sometimes within a week or three weeks, the process is done because of that financial incentive. But I wonder about, I mean, and I'm sure this is a minority of cases where this might actually happen, but I wonder about cases where things could potentially be worked through. The couple separates and then maybe they want to work things out on their own terms or take a little time. Um, and so if the the husband is really concerned about this big bill, could they be in a situation where they're rushing through to divorce, whereas possibly 
if they didn't have that financial uh, threat over his head, they might have been able to work things out. Is that ever a concern? Definitely. So one really important thing to know about the prenup is that before anything is officially enforced, you have a hearing in front of a beatdown. And that I think is actually a really important piece because these situations aren't one size fits all. And you have, you have the couple essentially standing in front of the Rebanim who are asking them what's going on. Definitely, if one person says, I want Shalom Bias, the, you know, the Beitin will ask the other person if they're interested in that, might encourage them to pursue that. Now, Bate didn't vary in terms of how they view a Shalom Bias request. Are they going to require you to go to counseling? Um, sort of a, a more old school Beitin might do that. But I think at the end of the day, if someone says, absolutely not, I'm 100% determined, there is nothing that would change my mind, I want to move forward with the divorce, there, I think one of the challenges is that you, you, there's only so much you could say or do to make a difference in that. We have occasionally had situations where there's a get and then they get back together. So that can happen. But um, what I found, and again, we... I'll freely admit that we see a subset of abusive, high-conflict, complex divorces. It's not necessarily your average divorce. But what I found is that by the time people are actually, you know, pulling the trigger on a get, they're going to court and they're filing papers, there is so much kind of mental anguish that has happened to get them to that point that it's very hard to get people to move backwards. So some people will say, for example, I'm not interested in supporting the prenup because I think it makes it too easy to get divorced. And what I always say to that is that if that's your concern, if your concern is really keeping people married, then create more funds that allow couples to access therapy when they want it and need it. But often by the time you're in divorce court, whether that's a Jewish court or a civil court, that is so far in that it's really hard for most people to go back. And and something that you said earlier also kind of stuck with me, where you're saying that like people who say, oh, I don't want to sign the prenup, you know, just in case. And you say, well, the, the only thing it's going to prevent you from doing is being a jerk if it comes to the uh, divorce proceedings. I think that's also like a really good way to gauge someone's character um, in the dating and engagement process, right? Because like typically in the more religious circles where dating is shorter, shidduch dating being the norm in a lot of circles, like you don't really know so much about a person. Like you have to be really, really perceptive. Um, and I talked with Avital Levin from Shalom Task Force about like recognizing all the red flags um, that could be there during the dating process. But even still, like it's really, it's hard. It's hard to know. So like this could be like, sort of another screening process, like, is this person willing to sign this? And if not, then why not? Like, could that be a red flag that this person potentially has control issues and things like that? Um, and that's an interesting thing to consider, like, you know, in within the dating and engagement process. We definitely, we have a new case form that Aguno fill out before they work with us. And we ask a lot of information. And we always ask, did you know about a halachic prenup? just in case we would have covered it in the intake, but did you sign one? If not, if you knew that it existed and you didn't sign it, why not? And we've gotten a number of NCFs, as we call them, 
where the person says, my fiance refused to sign it. And that doesn't mean that everyone who doesn't want to sign a prenup is a secret abuser. But in these cases, these were absolutely flags. These were controlling relationships. Before the marriage, the husband was refusing to sign a prenup. And now here they are into an Aguna situation where they're at the point where we're taking them on on the advocacy side. And I'll share as well, we have a few different sort of types of work that we do at OREP, but we also offer a one-stop prenup shop. So we help couples sign the prenup. We help them find the right version. There are different versions for some jurisdictions, but we also kind of work with couples who can't agree on it. And that's really interesting. And I was once on a two-way call with a, a bride and groom. And at some point the groom hung up and I was saying something else to the bride. And she said, oh, that's a really good point. Can you call, you know, Shlomo will call him and tell him that. And I said, well, you probably speak to him more than I do. It was also pretty late at this point. Um, maybe you could call him and tell him this point and talk it out. And she said, oh, I can't talk to him about this. And I really kind of pushed her on that a little bit. Like, tell me more. And I, I told her at one point, I said, you know, I've been married. I don't know how long I was married at the time, but marriage is full of talking things out. And you really need to be able to have a conversation together where you disagree. And if you can't do that, it is really good to know because whether it's an abuse situation or just a case where there's a, a lack in communication skills and you need to maybe bring in some outside support, a marriage is marriage is intense. Marriage is hard. You don't want to go into a marriage feeling like, oh, I can't talk to my fiance because I don't know what's going to happen there. So to, I think it's good, even if the prenup is something that a couple disagrees on, I think that's actually a good thing. It's good to disagree and it's good to see how you disagree and how you come out of that. And that's what sets you up for a strong marriage, not avoiding the topic because it might lead to a difference of opinions. I'm curious if you or any of your colleagues would intervene if you saw a situation where things were playing out, you know, in a, in a not good way. Like you guys see this all day long on the, on the flip side. Um, and so you're familiar with these sort of character traits, but like, you know, if a couple came in to do this and you were really concerned, would you, would you say something? Would you speak up and, and sort of bring it to their attention that something might be wrong here? It's a good question. It depends a little bit on the situation, but overall we would. I've told people I'm concerned about this dynamic. I know I'm only seeing this slice of your relationship and I know the engagement's stressful and I know all these things, but here's what is jumping out at me. Here's why it's concerning for me. If I can help you find a resource to talk about it, I would love to. If you wanna go find that resource on your own, that's fine too. I've also had situations where the person was referred by a Kaba teacher, a Rebbitzin, and I did express to that person what my concerns were. So we have shared it, but I think one of the hardest things about this work is that you can only, you can't make other people's decisions for them. So you kind of have to share it and hope that they kind of keep it going and really investigate what's going on and they might or they might not, but that's the idea. Yeah, but that's really good because in such a time pressured situation, the more you can find out about the other person, the better. And and prevention is is the key here, right? You know, like and that is the ultimate prevention if you can pick out a situation where there's like legitimate concern. Um, so just taking the the prenup a little further, um, I don't think it 
I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think this is something that's mainstream yet in all from circles. Um, I'm married for uh, almost 12 years. 12 years? 13? I don't know. <laughs> I lost track. Um, it's been a while. But certainly when I was engaged, this was nothing I ever heard of. And it's only something I've heard of much more recently. Uh, maybe I'm just late to the party. But like, what kind of circles is this more common in? Is this something that you ever see becoming like totally mainstream in the firm world? Where are we at with that in terms of, you know, the religious circles? Sure. So there's been a lot of development in terms of making this mainstream in the modern Orthodox community. So I married 11 years, I think. Um, and I'm, glad I, I'm not the only one who doesn't know. <laughs> I haven't do some math now. Um, and I also didn't know about it when I got married. I actually signed a post-nup, which you can do as well, just because I believe in it so much. I couldn't go around telling high school students to sign it one day and not have signed it myself. Um, but yeah, I didn't know about it either. And now it really is becoming part of the culture. When we have couples come into our office, I always ask them, what made you want to sign it? And I really feel like a few years ago, they were almost activists on this issue. Like they had written high school papers about it. They knew about this. They really wanted to sign the prenup. And then about a year ago, we had a couple come in and the bride was just kind of like scrolling on her phone. And I asked her, you know, why'd you sign the prenup? And she just sort of looks up for a minute and goes, well, doesn't everyone? And went back to her phone. And I was really thrilled because that's what we want. We want it to be so mainstream that it's boring. And um, so in the modern Orthodox community, it's really getting there. The RCA, the Rabbinical Council of America, passed a resolution in 2016 requiring member rabbis to only officiate at weddings with the prenup. And so there's been a tremendous amount of development. It is not even close to mainstream in the more black hat world, let alone the Hasidish world. We gave in Aguna one of our prenup water bottles, and she's like, what's this? And so it's, it's really far from the Hasidish community. But just in the past year, we've seen podcasts in the Yeshivish community talking about this. There was a cover article in Mishpacha about, you know, should we sign prenups? There are new versions of the prenup being developed to suit the needs of the Haredi community specifically. And so it's actually happening much faster than I ever thought it would. And I think it, maybe I'm naive or too optimistic, but I really think it can become mainstream in the entire Orthodox community. Because I think one of the keys to the prenup being successful is that it can't be something that you sign because you're kind of nervous about your fiance. It has to be something that you sign because everyone else is signing it. It has to be impersonal. And the more it's just kind of part of the wallpaper, you know, flowers, dress, prenup, moving right along, the more people will sign it and the less anxiety there is, the less it feels like a practice round divorce or anything like that. So I do think that it's getting that community buy-in that ultimately makes the difference and that actually makes it a lot less scary for individual rabbinim to present it to couples. So in terms of that community buy-in, like you mentioned in a lot of the more Haredi circles where it's not mainstream yet, a lot of community buy-in comes from what the rabbis are recommending. So, um, I mean, I'm not asking for any specific names, God forbid, but like, are you finding that there are rabbis that are resistant to the idea or are most of them pretty much on board? Um, what's like, where's the status in terms of the, the rabbinim? 
Right, so one thing that is good to know is that there are some very sort of big name post-scam that endorse the prenup. So Rev Salman Nechemia Goldberg endorses it. Rev Avadia Yosef Satsal endorsed it. Uh, Rev Asher Weiss, it was actually written by Rev Mordechai Willett. So it does have some good sort of rabbinic street cred, if you will. Um, in terms of the resistance, there are many rabbinim that will say, I think couples should sign it, but I won't sign my name to a letter saying that. So there is a gap between what people think and what they're willing to put into writing. And there are some rabbinim that don't feel comfortable with it. And typically in that case, it, it's less of a halakhic concern for the most part than what I call kind of the ick factor, but just like it feels divorcey. You know, we have these starry-eyed young couples, we don't want to scare them or, you know, make them feel like they're getting divorced tomorrow. The association with a secular prenup that it's, you know, the gold digger and all those kind of stereotypes. So I think that's typically the source of the resistance and that's where cultural change can make a difference because I think it really is a cultural resistance for the most part. Very interesting. I mean, it sounds almost like a no-brainer. I mean, like you said, no one wants to think about it when they're starry-eyed. But I think, you know, back in the day, divorce was very uncommon and people just kept their mouths shut and, and suffered um, to save face. But nowadays, everyone knows someone that's divorced. And unfortunately, like we all know people who have gone through really messy divorces, you know, and, and none of them thought when they were engaged uh, and starry-eyed that that was going to be them, you know. So, you know, the more it's normalized, like you said, the, the better it would be to prevent these kind of situations. So it sounds like, you know, the, the work that you and your colleagues are doing is, is just so phenomenal because it, if you can save even one person from going through that awful situation, then you've done your job. And, and on that note, like, have, I know this concept is still pretty new, but have you been seeing a lot of cases where the divorces go much more smoothly because of the prenups. We do. We have people reaching out to us on a pretty regular basis who are getting divorced and have a prenup and want to know, how do I actually use this thing? What's the process? And we generally do hear back from them that the get is given within a period of generally weeks, maybe a month or two. And again, we, we pay especially close attention when there's a history of domestic abuse or there are other complicating factors. But we do really see it in action. And I think that's why we're such big believers in it. It's easy to look at any document and say, well, what about this scenario? Or people, for example, always ask, what if a guy just wants to pay? So there's a financial disincentive. If he says, listen, I'm thrilled to spend $54,000 a year to keep my wife chained. Like, that's a bargain, no problem. That's a huge theoretical concern, but I think that practically, I've never seen someone choose to do that. I think that uh, wealthy people like their money too. They don't wanna give it to their ex who they're really not feeling very warmly towards right now, and I've never seen someone make that choice. So seeing the prenup in action, you're really able to see not only how well it works and how quickly it works, but also how much it addresses the issues that arise in a bad divorce situation. So without the prenup, there's all this arguing over the beaten. There's a lot of sort of issue battles. Are we dealing with custody in court and based in? What are we doing here? What are we doing there? Everything is 10 times more complicated. And with the prenup, because some of those decisions have been made in advance, it just makes the whole process much simpler and much more seamless. 
And it's so amazing that, you know, you, you guys have been able to identify just two really simple factors, the choosing the Beit Din in advance and the financial disincentive, as you call it. Um, and that just really takes so much um, like pain and agony completely off the table. It seems so simple, but yet it had to be someone who was really a forward thinker to come up with that, which is so amazing. Definitely. And I think the really powerful thing as well is that in a community where everyone signs the prenup, that's also a community where you just don't want to be a get refuser or an abuser in general, because it's really a powerful social message that even if this is only going to happen to XYZ amount of people out there, we all care enough about those people that we're all going to sign this document so that even if it's one in a thousand, that one in a thousandth person who needs it has it. And so by having prenup education, we speak to high school students, to college students, to um, communities, we do scholars and residents in shuls, it also changes the culture of the community itself. And I think it really creates a community where abusers know this kind of abuse at least is really not welcomed. And that changes how people act. Abusers need support systems too. And if they're in a place where they know they're not gonna get it, it makes a difference. And I'll add as well, since we have seen really extensive prenup education in the modern Orthodox community, we get almost no Aguna cases out of the community. So even among the people who never signed a prenup and are getting divorced, their divorce goes differently because they're in a community with a prenup culture. So even if they don't have a prenup, they get some of the benefits of being in a community where if the Rav hears there's a get issue, there's an immediate this is not okay, you need to do this right away, or you can't be part of a community. So it really changes the whole landscape, and we've seen a massive shift in our cases, where over the past five years, our cases are almost exclusively now from Haredi and Hasidish communities, and we're not getting modern Orthodox cases anymore. And so it, it really makes a powerful difference for the people who signed, for the people who you know, got married before it was a thing to sign, it changes the landscape and it changes the culture of the community. It's really, really impressive. Um, and I, like you said, the, the results speak for themselves. So it's amazing. Um, if somebody is listening and, you know, is in a situation where they either want to access the prenup or learn more about it, or they're, you know, God forbid, going through um, a difficult divorce, how did they reach out to you and you know, what's, the, what's the way they would go about uh, learning more about your organization? Definitely, so our website is www.getora.org and everything else I'm gonna mention now is linked through there, but you can email prenup at getora.org with any prenup questions or for help with signing. We are always available to help you make the process of signing easier. Even during COVID, we can talk you through the online notarization process and what's out there. Um, if you need help with a divorce situation, you can contact info at getora.org and that will direct you to our helpline. Our helpline is called One Step Forward. So the website for that program is osfline.org. And we also have a lot of you know, videos on the website. We have a list of rabbinic endorsements on the website and a lot of ways to help people get connected. And I'll just add as well, the helpline is not just for individuals going through this, but if you have a friend, a family member, if you're a community rub and you don't know what to do with the case that just came up, we speak to a lot of people who 
are in the world where they're encountering these issues and just want guidance on how can I be, how can I play a, play a helpful role in this process. And so anyone is welcome to call, whether it's direct impact or there's someone in your life or in your professional work that you think might be struggling. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that information. And I think like the, the work that you're doing is so impactful. It's like, and it's such a huge success for you and for everyone else that's working through it because you know, that the lifeline that I'm sure you are to so many people is incredible. And then with the prenup, um, with on the prevention end, like you don't even know what you're preventing or what could have been like, it's just, the scope is is so big you can't even really quantify it but it's for sure a tremendous tremendous impact which is amazing for you and for all of your colleagues who do this wonderful work um you know you should really be blessed with like so much energy and strength to keep it going because it's it's so needed and it's so valuable thank you so much and i think that the nafis for us is really seeing how much the community has changed and worked so hard to make a difference for Agunote. And also, you know, we've been able to hear from Agunote who are free and who invite us to their wedding and their next relationship and getting to see just the resilience that they have in building their lives is really, I think, inspiring and just wonderful for us. Yeah, what an amazing feeling. And like to take it back to what we said earlier, how it must be so difficult for you to hear of so many tragic cases but then on the other side when you help people out and you see the results of that it must be like a tremendous feeling of like you said nachas and and knowing that you had the the ability to help them is unbelievable so it's really really impressive and i just really want to thank you for sharing your time and all this really valuable information um you know, it's my wish that no one should need it, but of course there are people out there who do. So um, I really appreciate your time and um, thank you so much for being here, for sharing everything that you do and for doing all this for our community because at the end of the day, we as a community can all benefit from it. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me and using your platform to really spread the word and hopefully uh, just spread the word about the prenup and Ora's work to a new audience. And hopefully soon it'll be all prevention. <laughs> That's the goal. Our goal is to be out of a job and to move on to something else. And then you can go be a lawyer like you originally planned. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Keshet. Thank you so much. Take care. Take care.